0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed mazmi from Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Dr. Beatrice Nicolini and Dr. Shehan. De Silva Jayasuriya. Beatrice Nicolini is a professor of African history, institutions, religions, conflicts, and slavery in the Indian Ocean world at the Catholic University in Milan, Italy. Her research focuses on the connections between Southwestern Asia, the Persian Arabian Gulf, and the Sub-Saharan East Africa. The history of the Indian Ocean trade routes and development issues are her main research topics and she pursues them through archival and fieldwork investigations she has published numerous books among them are makran oman and zanzibar three terminal cultural corridor in the western indian ocean between 1799 to 1856 and the fair sultan of zanzibar scrambling for power and trade in the 19th century indian ocean and most recently, the historical relations between Oman and Balochistan in the Indian Ocean, among other publications. While the other guest, Shihan de Silva Jayasuriya, is a senior fellow at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies at School of Advanced Study in the University of London, and an elected fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society in Great Britain and Ireland. Her research focuses on migration, commerce, and cultural exchange in the Indian Ocean world. Among her interests are the Malay and Portuguese diasporas, African diaspora in the East, legacies of colonialism and the slave trade, and theoretical linguistics and ethnomusicology. Jaya Surya published and edited numerous books. Among them are Sur- uh, Survival Against All Odds, longevity of sri lanka portuguese Creole and african migration understanding trends and traditions and african identity in asia cultural effects of forced migration and the portuguese in the east a cultural history of a maritime trading empire and last but not least uncovering the history of africans in asia among other publications by discussing today's book, Land and Maritime Empires in the Indian Ocean, published by Educate Catholic University of the Sacred Heart, Milan in 2017, we will explore the history of the Indian Ocean through the themes of mobility, encounters, empires, and slavery. The book aims to reshape the historical understanding of Africa and Asia. Land and Maritime Empires in the Indian Ocean approaches afro Asiatic connections from different methodological perspectives. The two authors have re-read the Indian Ocean history's role away from traditional politics and international relations. They stated in the introduction, and I'm quoting, we are both aware that the study of the history of the Indian Ocean can no longer be considered merely as hagiographic reconstructions, but must take into consideration a number of historical political in institutional aspects. These include the presence of different cultural, social, and religious groups, together with the affirmation of the umani Ibadit dominance between the mid-17th and the beginning of the 19th centuries, the fundamental influence of the Indian mercantile and other Asian communities, and the impact with the Swahili population of the East African coast and the sub-Saharan regions. All of these issues should also be considered in relation to link, to links with Europe and with the newly United States of America. Welcome Beatrice and Shehan to new books in the Indian Ocean world, and thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. Uh, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, that is the Indian Ocean. And if you would like to mention any scholars and mentors and books that influenced you along the way, either of you could go first.
2: Okay. Uh, Sure. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, Yes, I was born in a a quite small middle-aged town that is named Mantua, that is 160 kilometers south from Milan. And... uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, grown up, especially by my grandparents. They were very much fond of traveling. So I started traveling at a very early age. And actually, at the university, I uh, developed this uh, personal. Curiosity and also passion and interest for extra European regions and cultures uh, because we uh, had this uh, possibility to learn uh, Islam and uh, many other uh, cultural topics with a professor who was uh, Valeria Piacentini. And she was among the first uh, women teaching this uh, topic in Italy uh, that is a country that has a very limited culture on this issue, especially inside uh, the Faculty of Political Science throughout Italy. Therefore, uh, we were the first uh, group of an archaeological and historical mission uh, sponsored by the Ministry of the Foreign Affairs and the Pakistani government to travel in Pakistan, especially in the region of Balochistan, which is a very uh, complex place of the world where very few people did travel, uh, probably also today, is a place uh, very much complicated to cross for foreigners especially and it was a real uh, uh unbelievable and unforgettable experience for all of us also because as i was saying before we 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 didn't we didn't realize the level of danger the level of risk that we run because uh, uh, were not fully aware probably, and this was part of my first experiences because after these uh, many uh, missions in uh, in Pakistan, I have been to Oman and I have been in Zanzibar, where I have been uh, searching and studying on the local archives together with many many. Uh, months and periods of research and study in the UK in the British archives. This uh, possibility that I was lucky enough to to have uh, to study more than one uh, country, not only in Asia, but in sub-Saharan East Africa as well, It was something that uh, gave me this idea of the interconnections, of the possibility to follow uh, the movements of these people from one region to the other one. And to tell you the truth, when I presented my manuscript to uh, Leiden, to Brill Academic Publishers, which is one of the most prestigious publishing houses in Europe and probably worldwide. uh, It was was funny because they had to organize a meeting uh, and they didn't know in which series they could publish my book proposal because there was somebody who was saying, well, this is Asian studies and some others said, no, it's impossible because she's talking about Zanzibar, so it's African studies. And so <laughs> everything was at the very beginning. Now Brill has an Indian Ocean series and many other publishing house and many other initiatives. And you too, Ahmed, have an Indian Ocean podcast as well. So everything is spreading so much and it's so positive. But then... Uh, at the very start of this kind of studies, it was uh, really difficult to uh, make a, a wider environment understand that it was most important to, um, to uh, realise the, the role of the Western Indian Ocean and the interconnections of this vast region.
1: mm mm-hmm. Indeed, uh, and definitely the field does straddle so many area studies and doesn't sit really comfortably with national histories. And that's why the series would struggle with locating such a, such a book. Um, that so, was Beatrice, by the way. What about you, uh, Um,
0: Okay, so thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I was born in the Indian Ocean island of Sri Lanka, uh, which is where I had my schooling. Um, and I became interested in Portuguese legacies in Sri Lanka through the transformations in the social culture which I observed. And this is in some ways an unconscious transformation uh, that the people today don't realize because we've had the Dutch and the British following the Portuguese to Sri Lanka. And the earliest colonizers' impressions are sometimes obscured, you know, confused with the other two, or everything is put on block as Western. So the Portuguese, uh, through these words, borrowed words that I found in my mother tongue, Singhala, which could be organized into semantic fields, represented the cultural contact area. So the cross-cultural areas can be seen through words. And then I became interested in the cultural history of Portuguese in a wider way in the Indian Ocean and about the diasporas that arose from the Portuguese arrival in Sri Lanka. So, given that I have several areas of interest, I have several mentors uh, Professor Lakshman Pereira, the professor of history, University of Colombo in Sri Lanka, Professor Philip Baker, who is a leading Creole linguist known mostly for his work on Mauritian French Creole, and Professor Theodora Bynan, a theoretical linguist and the head of linguistics at the School of Oriental and African Studies in the University of London. And then, when I became a research associate in King's College, London, in the Portuguese and Brazilian Studies department, Professor Malin Nuit, who was the Charles Boxer Chair of Portuguese Studies was a mentor. So, of course, Professor Charles Boxer, whom I met only once, influenced me greatly. His lucid style of writing and his great scholarship in Portuguese studies was uh, instrumental in my work in that area.
1: Great, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Now, let's turn to the book. Uh, Before we delve into the architecture of land and maritime empires in the Indian Ocean, I would like and I'm sure the listeners would like to to learn about the the genesis of this book how the idea came about it's not it's really uncommon for historians to collaborate and write one book so how did you come together and think about this book and um what was your writing experience like
2: uh well yes actually um I, as as I told uh, before, in my country, there are no Indian Ocean World, Indian Ocean History courses whatsoever, as far as I know. And in my faculty, it was very much difficult to uh, make these topics uh, acceptable inside courses. Therefore, I realized it was very much important to give a sign, a concrete uh, proof of um, our commitment. And I propose, a Shihan that I knew since many years ago because we met in London more than once to collect our major uh, essays, our major research in a... In a new uh, publication that could give this uh, fundamental interdisciplinary and multi approach to this region in order to attract students in order to attract colleagues as well so as we have a a local internal publishing house and house a publishing house inside our university was very easy uh, because you know sometimes it's quite difficult to publish also because of research funds and things like that and so we just managed to uh, open this uh, new field of studies in my country and now uh, The thing is very much successful because I tell you this year that I can't see anybody. I I never met my students uh, because we started in October. I have more than 100 people following uh, my short course of Indian Ocean World, and they're reading this book as well. So, you know, it has been a very good idea.
1: Mm -hmm. That's really great, and uh, we are grateful for writing this book. Uh, The book, uh, Land and Maritime Empires, consists of four chapters with an introduction. Uh, How does the book conceptualize empires on land and sea? Uh, In other words, what differentiated between the Indian Ocean and intruding European empires in terms of how sovereignty and plurality played out in their politics?
2: Yes. Uh, This is a very difficult question, actually. uh, I think the choice of the title and the choice of the topic itself is very much linked to the idea of uh, Terence Ranger invention of tradition, for example. So this idea of naming uh, empire, kingdom, naming with European terms, different realities far from Europe that are not uh, related in that institutional and political sense. So this idea of putting uh, Western models to non-Western regions in order to try as much as possible to define and therefore to control. So the necessity to control these movements, these liquid areas, these people is something uh, that we are still paying a high price today because the truth is that you can't control borders, especially when they are artificial, such as some regions in Africa. Enough, well, the whole of the African continent for sure, and many regions in Africa, and also the liquid regions such as the Indian Ocean is absolutely impossible to control. So the idea of naming empire a reality that is very far from the Western concept is something that could be also uh, read as an ironical idea because uh, the kingdom and the empire and the way of governing in some other regions far from Europe, it doesn't exist. It's impossible to apply those kind of uh, power system. And when you try to do it, you see the result that is, in the major of the occasions and cas- cases, a negative
1: one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the introduction, there is an interesting uh, methodological approach which characterizes the Indian Ocean as an ecotone. And it's defined as a, trans- a, a transitional area between two or more distinct ecological communities. Um, I'm wondering what is the analytical purchase of this approach in writing oceanic history
2: Uh, yes Uh, well this is a simply uh, borrowing concept from geography and I believe that there is always this uh, difficulties in uh, uh, approaching the same topic from different points of view from different um, basis. So I believe that, uh, let's say, using, which is a wrong uh, term, geographical concepts to a uh, cultural and political region could be helpful in order to analyze, in order to try to understand. Uh, the role of these transitional areas of these uh, communities, there are always communicating between them. Also because uh, there is a political intent in closing communication, uh, especially for some historical periods. And therefore, the idea of the existence of an ecotone could help. Uh, in order to uh, see, to watch these literals from a different perspective, hopefully.
1: Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned the connections between the mountains and the sea and the hinterlands and the littoral. So this transitional uh, ecotome helps really to think about all of these connections on land and sea. Um, and in your first chapter... Uh, intercultural connections in the Indian Ocean, the five shadow lines uh, between codes. Uh, can you introduce the listeners to these five shadow lines? What do you mean by them? And how do they define the intercultural connections that you examine in this chapter between the regions of Balochistan, Oman, and East Africa?
2: Sure, yes. Actually, the the... The idea of the shadow line is coming simply for Joseph Conrad's romance and uh, this idea that uh, there are so uh, many different perspectives that have been uh, leading for so many years. For example... I uh, decided to, in order to try to clarify as much as possible, to divide these five lines. And the first one was an open question about the role of globalization inside the Indian Ocean world. Because sometimes um, you you think that this world is really uh, globalized, but then maybe it's not that true. So the idea of globalization could be reread in order to understand that, for example, uh, there have been, and here we go to the second uh, shadow line, to something that I named water drunkness. Because there are so many studies from the sea uh, on the sea and it's so easy to forget the role of the land so it's I believe it's important to uh, reread the role of the liquid region the role of the sea in order to involve as well, all the process, all the movements, all the initiatives, all the different, uh, modifications that happen along the hinterland in East Africa, for example, in the uh, desolate region of Southwestern Asia, and therefore, You can also try to reanalyze the third line that is the role of the Swahili coast, the role of the Swahili civilization. That also is another huge topic that has been studied mainly uh, confined only to East African shores, which is something that is very much limiting and closing because uh, the Swahili civilization is much wider in its influence than we maybe uh, perceive, simply also maybe because in uh, Western culture we have this uh, monopoly of the written sources. So when you... uh, Uh, pass to uh, examine oral sources and memories, Uh, sometimes it's just uh, for one telegram that everything that has been studied on oral sources is counselling, is disappearing. So I believe that uh, there must be consideration and respect for the role of oral sources, and especially for the role of the Swahili civilization, the fourth um, shadow line is represented by the role of the uh, what they wrongly name Oriental slave trade, which is something that, uh, for example, Olivier Pretre Grenouillot have been uh, uh, publishing. Uh, very much. He is an important author about the role of the Eastern African slave trade and this idea that only the transatlantic slave trade has uh, the quantities, have the brutal experience, have the deep ones, and the oriental slave trade is something that just concerning concubine Domestic workers, and it's something that is much uh, also lower in quantities, which is probably not true, not that true, simply because we don't have data. Uh, the last uh, point that I try to highlight it was the Sultan's myth, the role of the political leadership, the role of the 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 dangers of focusing merely on processes of dominance. Uh, this is something uh, very much linked to uh, European theoretical history, historiographical theories and to uh, the, the the heavy a tradition that we have on Western history that focuses mainly on uh, political leaders on histoire uh, événementielle, which is a very uh, which is a, actually a limit for Indian Ocean studies. So the the perspective of studying an area that is not belonging to my uh, geographical origin could be useful in order to propose different ways of interpreting a region which is escaping, for definition, from any tentative of confining of, Trying to uh, shorten, of trying to render smaller than it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for elaborating uh, on these uh, five uh, research questions and lines that you pursued in this chapter. And we will come back to learn more about these three regions that I've mentioned uh, next. Um, So, Shihan, you've written the second chapter, Portuguese Trade Encounters in Eastern Africa, Linguistic Impact in Mozambique. Uh, What characterized the trade encounters between the Portuguese and African groups in East Africa? And how did that translate in terms of linguistic contacts and impacts that you examine uh, in chapter two? Uh, if you can provide some illustrative examples uh, that you beautifully chart in, the, in this uh, chapter.
0: Uh, thank you for those questions. So historian Kirti Chaudhry says that the Portuguese claims to sovereignty were expressed through their efforts to eliminate Muslim trade to the Red Sea and East Africa. So by severing the trade between Arabs and Indians, the Portuguese viceroy, Afonso Albuquerque, he envisaged forcing Indians to trade with the Portuguese. Mercantile networks across Northern Europe, Mediterranean and Southeast Asia had been built up centuries earlier by a variety of European trading families and cities. But a true global market was created. By the Portuguese and the Spaniards, and their trade networks crisscross the oceans in the world the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and the Pacific Ocean. By exploiting the strifes between Swahili communities, the Portuguese manipulated the politics of coastal cities to their advantage. But the underlying animosities, Contributed to the decline of Portuguese influence on the Swahili coast. Swahili communities were called Muros by the Portuguese, regardless of their ethnic origins as Islamicized Africans and Arabs. The political situation of the city states of Pate, Malindi, Mombasa, and Kilwa were unstable, and the Portuguese befriended the Sultan of Malindi and found an ally in the region. So they developed trade on the coast, and this was a different strategy to the Arab traders, who sent caravans to the interior. The Indian Ocean has been an arena for interactions between different ethno-religious groups, all struggling for market shares and political power, and creating networks of alliances of various sorts, And I am interested in the linguistics and social interactions that were part of these transactions, which have been less written about. So lexical borrowing or borrowed words is an area where language contact can be observed. And Prata had identified Portuguese words adopted by four languages spoken in Mozambique, by the Imakwa, Echuabo, Chisena and Ekoti. These languages are spoken in various parts of Mozambique. Ekoti is spoken in Angosh, Chisena is spoken in Sena, Echwabo in Kelimane, and Imakwa in northern Mozambique. So these adopted words show the areas of cross-cultural contact. And the semantic fields that I identified are temporal elements, numbers, Words to do with administration and they were civil administration, judicial administration, financial administration, military administration, words that are concerned people and occupation, religion, education, entertainment, household, architecture, flora, fauna, food and drink, and there were social and political words, words to do with clothing health and emotions, and also some grammatical categories like verbs, adverbs, adjectives and conjunction. And as for specific examples, you will find them in the book. But what's interesting is that for words to have been borrowed, there needs to have been people who were bilingual in both these languages. So if you consider imaqua, there were people who spoke Portuguese and imaqua and they do this by two strategies. One is called code switching and the other is called code mixing. So in code switching, the speaker switches between imaqua and Portuguese as he speaks. In code mixing, he mixes Portuguese and makwa in chunks and sometimes he speaks in only in makwa. So through these strategies, uh, b- words are borrowed. And when these words are adopted by monolingual people, we call them borrowed words. But the word borrowed is not exactly a correct word, though the linguists use it. It's better to say adopted words because borrowing implies returning something. And these words, once they enter the language, are there to stay forever. So they're not borrowed and returned, but they have been adopted.
1: I like that because often we use the words uh, loaned words and borrowed words. And as you said, these these cultural uh, imprints are there to stay. Um, and this is really a valuable contribution because the linguistic aspect of the Indian Ocean world hasn't been, I would argue, investigated thoroughly. And we know more about the politics and the economy and less so about the cultural impacts of these encounters. So th- this is really yeah. useful to, to, I would say, to think about when we are talking about linguistic cosmopolis and people have written about such as Ronit Ritchie on the Arabic cosmopolis or the Persian cosmopolis and Sanskrit cosmopolis, uh, cosmopolis by Pollock. Um, and, and in this chapter you uh, depicting Portuguese as a lingua franca between all of these groups and the Portuguese. Um, so so this is really useful to think with I think and and further work on.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh,
1: uh, I've mentioned the, the three cultural corridors that you, uh, Beatrice, worked on. Uh, that is the region of Balochistan. And for, who, uh, for whom you don't know about this region, it's situated between the current nation states of uh, Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, and Oman, which is in southeastern Arabia, and then the Swahili coast, which is from the, uh, the Kenyan coast all the way to, down to Mozambique and, and Madagascar. Um so these regions have been connected uh, within uh, as as domains of the Omani empire and chapter 3 the empire of oman and the indian ocean focuses on the material and the immaterial foundations of the omani imperial expansion in the indian ocean from the early modern period to the 19th century uh so as you narrate in this chapter uh how this empire was formed uh, and how it, uh, had it become increasingly uh, subsumed by the British Empire in the subsequent decades of the 19th century?
2: Well, uh, yes. Uh, as you uh, rightly explain, the role of Oman inside the history of the Indian Ocean is one of the most important ones because uh, This is a very uh, maritime nation and its richness has always been built on the sea. Therefore, uh, the relationships between the port of Muscat and the ports of uh, southwestern Asia, especially of Gwadar, that has been an Omani enclave for more than 200 years together, with uh, other strategic ports along the coast of East Africa have always been interconnected between themselves since, as many essays and books say, immemorial years. So this is not a recent trade uh, social, religious, and also probably political reality, but it's a very ancient one that goes back to uh, probably uh, the 7th, 8th century CE. So, um, this country have always uh, been an attractive uh, center for many different peoples from uh, many different regions. And one of the most important characteristic to this idea of polarizing uh, so many different communities is given probably by ibadism because the religious uh, character of the major, uh, the majority of Omani population is ibadism. There is a peculiar cultural and religious uh, feature of the country that is very much tolerant and very much open and also uh, uh, very much uh, used to forgiveness and to understand the role of the many different communities to the richness of their country. Uh, This situation uh, developed uh, very shortly in an imperial uh, necessity to uh, define and to give uh, the level of Uh, Omani Empire to a very large region and also uh, we have to think about uh, the role of the banning of the slave trade, especially in the 18th and the 19th century, where Great Britain played a very important role in uh, many treaties, many political treaties, that were focusing on the patrolling of the ships. If you read an article in the Treaty of Vienna, for example, of 1815, you find that the slave trade is prohibited for all Christian nations. Therefore, there were many Omani ships that were used by European slave traders in order to prosecute this trade that was a very lucrative one and not using European ships because they were prohibited by this famous Vienna Treaty. Uh, it is also true that during especially the second half of the 19th century. Uh, the necessity to create an empire from the British point of view, the necessity to label Omani Empire in this vast region was very much put in discussion by a, a sultan who was Khalid in 1896, and who declared his. Uh, personal independence and reign in Zanzibar, and his reign lasted only three days. And for these three days, the island uh, was attacked by a very brutal bombardment and 500 people were injured and died. And the Sultan was exiled for 30 years. So for three days of independent reign he paid a, an exile that lasted thirty years. So you understand how is a uh, fragile and how is uh, dangerous to play with political lovers and with <laughs> Especially technological and weapon superiority in this Western Indian Ocean region.
1: Mm -hmm. So even after the abolition of slavery, the British were quite keen on enforcing uh, their their hegemony, I would say, and sovereignty over Zanzibar. And if if one of the sultans tried to break away from that. Project, uh, he would face severe consequences as in the case of uh, Khaled that you've mentioned. Um, Sure.
2: No, sure. Because, you know, uh, the most important uh, colony was India, not Africa. So, Mm -hmm. every everything that was uh, menacing the role of uh, Western Indian ports, Western Indian defence, everything concerning India for UK was absolutely out of their interest. So the idea of this uh, famous defence line, it was an idea of building a railway from Cairo to the Cape in order to defend and control the Western Indian sources, the richness coming from India. Everything was focused on India. So Africa has never been a priority. Probably even today we have this uh, obsolete and narrow perspective. That's why no political leadership was allowed by uh, the British monopoly of the seas if it was not
1: agreed by the administration. Mm-hmm, indeed. And, and going back uh, a bit in time in Chapter 4, East India Company, Stepovers in Madagascar, A Stepping Stone in the Indian Ocean, by uh, Shihan, we learn about... Uh, the backstory of the 19th century uh, by centering Madagascar. So I'm asking you, what role did Madagascar play in the history of the Indian Ocean slave trade and the European imperial projects? And what was the impact of abolitionism on its society and oceanic connections?
0: Thank you for these questions. So in the Indian Ocean, long-distance commerce and empire-building became entangled with slave trading, uh, which of course existed before the Europeans intervened in Indian Ocean trade. So in terms of the slave trade, Madagascar is interesting because it's both an exporter and an importer. And I have been interested in the process of slave trading, the involvement of the local elite, the mediators and the interpreters, and the surreptitious way The trade was conducted, and this I could see through the logbook of Captain Dominicus. This is a 1752 logbook, which I found in the British Library in London. And the Captain Dominicus was the captain of an East India company ship called the Delaware. So the Delaware left England and first stopped at St. Augustine's Bay, a colony that was founded by the English. In the late 17th century in Madagascar. And then she spent three months in Madagascar and collected 229 captives before she sailed to the East India Company factory in Chennai and then on to Sumatra and Java and offloading those enslaved people. So the Portuguese, the first Europeans who intervened in this Indian Ocean trade in the early modern period, were occupying East African ports and the rivalries among European powers for commerce meant that Madagascar, the fourth largest island in the world, became an alternative stopover point for the British, the French and the Dutch who were en route to the east and they stopped there to replenish stocks of food and water and of course for buying enslaved people. Madagascar's attractions were several, gemstones, cattle, rice, rum, ebony, copal resin, soapstone and of course enslaved people. European colonization followed these commercial transactions and of course human capital was needed to man the trading networks and empires. So the Mascarene plantation economy nearby in the western Indian Ocean also created a demand for Malagasy slaves. And the enslaved from East Africa were taken to Madagascar to meet the demand. So in the 18th century, most Malagasy societies practiced slavery. And by the late 18th century, the Imerina kingdom had emerged as the most powerful Because of the slave trade with the Mascarenes and British anti slavery efforts focused on this kingdom, and the crucial years covering abolition were marked by stability under a powerful monarch, King Radhama I, who also exercised control over the eastern shores of the island. And in 1817, when the king entered into a treaty with Britain, in return for ending the slave trade, the British agreed to train Radhama's army. And after this treaty in 1817, anyone helping with the slave sale of captives was reduced to slavery. But this treaty wasn't enough to curtail the slave trade and three years later in 1820, there was another treaty, the Britannia-Marina Treaty. That put an end to slave exports from marina-controlled areas. But still, importing continued and even increased. But captives also disguised as indentured laborers were exported to Indian Ocean islands. So you can see how difficult it is to control the slave trade. And that is interesting, which I saw for me through Madagascar. Christianity and evangelizing was seen as ways of modernizing the Malagasis and a step towards ending the slave trade. And despite this king's efforts in negotiating treaties and reminding his people of the necessity not to engage in slave trading, abolition was, as in other parts of the Indian Ocean world, problematic. So slavery was not abolished in the British Empire, we know, until 1833. an abolition of the slave trade in Madagascar followed two years later, in 1835. But yet, even after that, slavery continued in the form of bondage, where Malagasy served someone above them in the social hierarchy. Finally, it was when the French became the colonial power in 1896 and the slave trade was violating the French Republican principles of liberte, égalite, fraternite, only then was slavery abolished. And at that time, an estimated 500,000 enslaved people, that is half a million, were freed. So you can imagine the scale of the enslaved people in Madagascar.
1: Indeed, and, and the people of Madagascar have been enslaved and shipped to ports in so- Southern America and also to Southeast Asia. So they've virtually spread in both the Atlantic world and the Indian Ocean. Um, well, yes. uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation, and uh, but we've taken a lot of your time, uh, Beatrice and Shihan. Uh, as as a wrap up uh, to this uh, very engaging and stimulating conversation, uh, what are you working on now? I'm not expecting that you've been working during the pandemic, but if you can share uh, any of your current or future projects that you hope to work on.
2: Uh yes, uh, thank you. Yes, sure. Uh, actually, I have a real challenge because I have been requested to write a monumental history uh, of uh, Oman, illustrated history. So it should be something like five, six hundred book. Uh, with maps, uh, pictures, illustrations and everything. And um, I think the title could be something like uh, Blossoms and Blessings. So it's a positive approach to a very complex region that we hope during this terrible 2020 to recover and to go back possibly to these shores that I
0: really love.
1: That that sounds really great. Uh, What about you, Shihan?
0: Um, I'm looking forward to next year when I'm doing something different. So the last few years I have been convening conferences at the School of Advanced Study here in the University of London. So I'm uh, editing and also contributing to two books, and they're multi-author books coming arising out of these conferences. One is on the legacies of the Portuguese empire and post-colonial societies, and that will have chapters from Asia, Americas, and Africa. And the other is slightly different topic on sustaining support for intangible cultural heritage. And this also considers how the pandemic has affected heritage. And we have case studies from America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. So I'm looking forward to reading all those papers and seeing those projects to completion next year.
1: Fantastic. We will be definitely looking forward to all of these. Uh, excellent projects. Uh, well, thank you for uh, this conversation and thank you to the listeners uh, for sailing with us really across the Persian uh, Gulf to the Arabian Sea and along the Swahili coast and back. Uh, today, we explored uh, the book Land and Maritime Empires in the Indian Ocean, published by Educat Catholic University of the Sacred Heart in Milan in 2017. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.